Well, friends, welcome back again to the Space for Faith podcast, where we're having conversations, reimagining the church for our current moment. And my name is Mike Goldsworthy, and I get to hang out with you all and have these great conversations with folks that are having, uh, doing interesting things, thinking interesting thoughts, writing interesting books, leading interesting churches. And so uh, thanks for hanging out with me. And many of you know, and we have connected through some of the work that I do with post-evangelical churches, a gathering that uh, I'm leading that we led last year in October in South Bend, this year in October in Denver for pastors and artists and other church leaders who are engaged in the space. And some of the language that we've been using around this is that you feel ecclesiologically homeless. You're not really sure where you fit in the church space anymore and all sorts of reasons for that we've discovered. And we have shared and I've shared uh, and maybe even some of our guests have shared different sort of pieces of how this fits together in different times that we have talked on on this podcast. And so we've got some narrative around like how have we ended up in that space and what what sort of like has made this space. Well, a group of us have been meeting to sort of put a little bit more structure around both the work that I'm doing as well as creating some more structure around a larger work of what's happening in the space specifically for churches and pastors for um, finding ways to connect uh, churches in the space, finding ways to help resource churches in the space, finding ways to see new churches launched in the space. And so we began, we began trying to like just articulate a little bit more. And we've we've come up with with like five sort of things right now that we've said, like what what if these churches, these five things are generally true here? Now we're we're gonna get into a great conversation here in a minute. I should have said that at the get-go with uh Mallory Wyckoff, who's written a new book called God Is that I can't wait for you to get to hear from her. She's super fascinating, is a new friend. I can't wait to hang out with her more and learn more from her. I think you're going to love her. But I thought maybe as we got going, before we get into a conversation with Mallory, I thought I would just sort of pass these five things by you to see how they feel. For those of you who feel like you resonate with the post-evangelical space, that you have come to the gathering, you have connected with things that I'm doing or that others in the space are doing. I, I just kind of want to ask you to like, what if you tried these five things on a little bit, like like a coat or something and see like, does this fit? Does this sort of feel right? Let me just break in here real quick and say, for those of you that want to skip over this, totally fine. And you just want to get to Mallory because she has some great things to share. Uh, skip over to about seven and a half minutes into the podcast and you can jump straight into that conversation with Mallory. So so here they are. I'll just give kind of a quick thing on them. This is all wet cement. We're kind of playing around with it here, but we've said we think churches in this space, what's true of them is that there's full inclusion. There's no barriers to belonging. There's no barriers. There's no barriers to uh, serving, being fully engaged. And so regardless of sex, sexual identity, your gender, your sexual orientation, your disabilities, that uh, this space, churches in this space, are working towards being fully inclusive in multiple kinds of ways. So that's first. Second is what's true is that uh, 
is that churches in the space have at least a sort of creedal foundation that can affirm to say that like that uh, the Christian faith isn't a made-up faith. I think you've heard me say on here before, it's an inherited faith. It's something that is passed on and that what has defined broadly what the Christian faith is in terms of beliefs for a long time has been the ancient creeds. So could we all agree on the Apostles' Creed? And we get more into into that, but to say like that there, that that there's this historical thing that we come from and that we are united theologically by the faith that's handed down to us. So full inclusion, uh, creedal foundation. Third thing that we're saying, we're seeing as being true in the space is that it's churches that are pursuing holistic justice, that it's pursuit of uh, liberation and mission and freedom. It's justice without being patriarchal, colonizing, supremacist. It's a more robust uh, vision and experience of justice than many of us were handed down. And so we're working to actually like pursue that. So uh, full inclusion, creedal foundation, holistic justice. And we're experiencing churches in the space. The fourth thing is have a deep and wide formation that churches in the space we're seeing have are pulling from a diversity of tradition and interpretations, are paying attention to the depth and breadth of the Christian church, both worldwide and historically, that churches in the space seem to have a posture of curiosity and of learning and are oriented towards formation and seeing people move towards more and more Christ-likeness. And so there's this deep and robust engagement in Scripture and trying to understand it, and that there is also this wide um, experience of, like, a whole lot of people wrestling through this in a lot of different ways and have historically, can we grab a hold of all those things? So that's fourth, full inclusion, creedal foundation, holistic justice, deep and wide formation. And then the last thing, the last thing is something um, that I have noticed to be true as I engage with churches in this space is that there is this gracious posture, that there's this intentional movement to say, we're not trying to move from being conservative fundamentalists to now being progressive fundamentalists. And so one of the reasons that it has been a bit hard to define this space is because there is this propensity against defining some hard lines around some things, because many of us are coming out of spaces that did that. And you saw what happened there, and you don't want to just trade one set of boundaries for a new set of boundaries. So what we're starting to see in the space, not even starting, what we have been seeing in the space is this gracious posture, a gracious engagement for all people. In fact, even especially those who disagree with us while still while still saying, being able to hold on to one of the phrases that I've used. I don't know if any churches in the space would use this, but one that I've used over the years is that we hold things tightly and loosely, that we hold tightly to our convictions and we have this open hand to say, well, I also could be wrong. And what does it look like for me to invite more people to the table? So anyways, those of you that feel at home in this post-evangelical space, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear how that feels, how that resonates with you. Now, we get to hear from the great Dr. Mallory Wyckoff here in a moment as she uh, talks to us a bit about not only her own sort of faith journey, but also her new book coming out called God Is. Highly recommend it. Would love for you to pick it up. Let's jump into that interview, friends. 
We have a new friend with us today, Mallory Wyckoff, who has a new book coming out that I am stoked for you to get to hear about. But before we get into your book, Mallory, um, you are, here's, here's the bio that I got. You're a teacher, preacher, writer, and spiritual director. You serve as the key relationships officer with Preemptive Love. Um, I would love for you to tell folks about Preemptive Love because um, you all are wonderful and are doing good work. Uh, which is, oh, here's the next line in your bio. It's a global community of peacemakers working to end war and to stop the spread of violence. Uh, you completed your dissertation on the impact of sexual trauma on survivors' theological perception and spiritual formation. Uh, you have a demon, which for those of you that are not in the church world, a demon is not a, a demon from the dark spiritual realms, but it's a D-M-I-N, doctorate of ministry from Lipscomb University in missional and spiritual formation. And in all of your work, Mallory is a trusted voice for people seeking to navigate their spirituality with curiosity, honesty, and courage. A native Floridian, you live with your husband and your daughters, Olive and Ivy. How does that feel like super long when you hear somebody reading it while you're sitting there? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I I never feel great about a bio, right? It's like it's the worst. Too little did I undersell myself? Did I oversell? But hey, great reading. Let's focus on that. You did a really nice job reading that. <laughs> well, Mallory, I'm really glad to have you on here. And this is the first time that we're getting to meet and connect. And um I I wanted us to save all of our banter for like here so um so that we weren't getting to miss some of it. But I, I do want to tell you, like, I loved your book. Mm-hmm. I thought you are a fa- This is your first book, and I thought you're a fantastic writer. Um, I think there's so much here. I think, like, I'm really excited for even then, like, what your next projects are. Mm-hmm. Um, but before, like, before we talk about your book, I'm kind of curious, like, uh, it sounds to me like you grew up in the church. Is that is that right? I did. And then you go through your own sort of, like, faith journey where your faith changes, grows, expands, evolves. Um do you mind sharing, like, what did that look like for you? What was that sort of journey like for you? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate them. You know, I've told various parts of my story at various times, and the kind of image or structure that I think is most helpful for me even to make sense of that that growth, that expansion, that evolution that you named has been this. Um, I was given a, a, a box um, that uh, kind of encapsulated the ways to think about God, about faith, about the world, others, myself, et cetera. Um, and it was a really pretty small, you know, confining box, but it was really safe. It was warm. It was comfortable. Um, it was really helpful, you know, growing up and being really small to have a, a space that doesn't feel too much bigger than you, right? It's navigable. It's it's supportive. It's nurturing. And so that works for me for for a long time. Um, being given that particular box. And then at some point, I started to kind of bump up against the edges of that space, of that box, and it no longer worked for me. It was just a little bit too small. And so then I kind of just started elbowing at it a little bit until the mm. the <laughs> until the walls came open, and I found myself now in a larger box, a larger space. And so then I moved around and I navigated that that new one, right? And found what what it offered and the ways that it that that new space, that new understanding um, offered for again the ways of thinking about myself, God, others, etc. 
And that that process, like that process of evolution just continued over time with some really clear movements and, and iterations and then then associated um, particular understandings of the divine and particular images of God that were especially helpful and pivotal in each of those movements and, and iterations. Um, and I didn't necessarily, in most of those movements, I didn't necessarily know that that's what was happening. It's just what was happening, right? But then looking back, like, oh, okay, I can start to see the trajectory of this and then I'm kind of onto it, right? I kind of know, oh, okay, so this is how this works. If you are open to this stirring sense within saying, hey, I think there's more outside of this, you start to feel that sense of curiosity around and it feels like, yeah, I think I think the next kind of shift is coming. Um, and you sense that internally, but also externally. And then the moment happens where the shift really kind of fully takes place and you and you move into it. Then you just kind of start living more, or I at least say I started living more and more aware of and awake to those moments and when they were going to come. And in each of those iterations, I gained new things. I also lost new things, right? There's this shedding, this releasing, but there's also this embracing and accepting of of the new and the celebration of of those past versions of myself, those past versions of faith, but also releasing some of those things as well um, and, and needing to do and allow for both of those has felt really essential to me. Um, and so I'm not, I know I'm not necessarily naming even some of the particulars of each of those moments because actually sure. the process has felt more important to me than the, than the particulars and even focusing on some of those. And certainly we can discuss those, but um, that, that, that is what it has looked like. And so I, I love that because it allows me to look back, reflect on, and even celebrate that. It also reminds me there's going to be a new shift coming at some point, right? The one I've been in uh, that I'm currently in now, I've been in for the last probably six or eight years. And um, certainly there's been movement within that, but there's kind of this clear, this clear space where, okay, I'm, I'm making sense of what this looks like. And, and that will be the one I'm in forever. And so I'm seeking right now to look around and to see everything there is to see now. And then also when I start to sense movement that's saying, yeah, I think, I think the next movement's happening, then being willing to go there with with curiosity, with courage, with honesty and integrity. Um, yeah. Hmm. And so does this work, is the work that you're doing both um, at the university and like you told some stories that I'm kind of curious about, um, maybe I'll ask you about it in a little bit of like some other things that it felt like might be little angles to some of the work that you do as well. Um, is the work that you're doing now both in like this writing project as well as other stuff, does it feel like this is all being birthed out of what's been stirring in you over these last several years in this last movement? Can you ask that question again? So I want to make sure I, I fully understand it. Yeah. I, well, I'm kind of curious if it's like, if the stuff that you're engaged in, the work that you're engaged in, if it's coming out of sort of the movement that you're experiencing in your faith journey right now, or if it's like, if it's coming out of sort of an earlier iteration that you're able to maybe have more clarity on now and look back on and kind of name because you have some distance from it. So is it kind of like out of the movement of what's stirring in this season, or is it out of the ability to have a little, I guess, distance and clarity? Yeah, both. And and okay. true both for myself and also for the people with whom I'm interacting or holding space with, right? So it is helpful for me to understand the space that I'm currently navigating in a given season um, and to remember past 
seasons, right? It's also helpful for me, whether I'm sitting with someone in a spiritual direction session or I'm talking with a student or working with a colleague, whatever it may be, to kind of begin to understand, oh, I, th- I think I see the parameters uh, that by, by which they make sense of the world and self and God and, and faith, right? And, and what that does is help me um, honor them, right? And because I've allowed the movements within myself to happen, to not force them and to grieve at times when I've needed to, but also to embrace the new um, and to do so without judgment of the past versions that has felt essential, right? That yeah, does yeah, help yeah. allow me then to be present with another person in whatever box, if you will, or whatever space they're occupying, right? Whatever structure or schema that's allowing them to make sense of life and of of spirituality and so on. And so I began to get a sense of, okay, here's kind of where they are. So I can join them in that space as a way to honor what is true for them right now. I don't have to evaluate it. I don't have to judge it. um, Nor do I have to really even evaluate and judge all of my own past experiences and iterations, but I can name that was true for me then right? I was seeking to live out an expression of truth that made sense to me. And maybe it was it was unhelpful in some ways, maybe even harmful in some ways, right? Acknowledging that, but I can at least name that was true for me then. And here's what's true now. And that feels really different than having to say, oh, I was wrong then, but I'm right now. And that feels important for me personally, but also feels especially important for me, again, in the work that I'm doing in various contexts so that I'm not having to go, oh, this person is wrong. And therefore, I need to move them from A to B. Instead, my invitation is to be a companion with them, to join into whatever space it looks like for them right now in this given season and help them explore it more more fully, right? That feels much more honoring than a lot of other options that are available in the kind of work I do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, um, several years ago, got introduced to Spiral Dynamics mm-hmm. and to... Um, uh, the stages of faith work that James Fowler did. Mm-hmm. And that became this really helpful framework for me to like, to start to move towards non-judgment, to be able to like name and categories and say, like you were saying like, Oh, here's the boundaries that they're operating within and that they're bumping up against here. Right. Um, I needed a sort of like intellectual journey, I think to get there. Like what was for you to be a, like, was that through spiritual direction? Was that through your doctoral work? Like what, how did you get there? Mm-hmm. All of the above, I would say, but probably the the biggest piece is just in therapy, right? Yeah. As you revisit um, former seasons and parts of yourself that were in the past, but are also still very much operating in the present now and, and calling the shots in so many ways. And so, you know, visiting those parts of myself and just doing so realizing like there's no room for judgment when I go and and I have visited this five-year-old part within me um, and realizing, oh my God, all the shame that I had felt at that season, right? And now looking at going, there is no reason for you to hold any shame. It just, it just um, disallowed for the option of judgment and of, of self, but rather to kind of look at really clear eyed and go, oh, of course, here's what was going on here, right? Here's, of course, this is why and how you made sense of things at that time. And that naturally then just led me to go, huh, this is a pattern of of exploring my own story with um, a lot of love and curiosity rather than judgment and, and critique, which then again, kind of opened me up to wanting to really offer that to others in the ways that I'm holding space for them 
whatever that that season looks like for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking as you're talking about a few minutes ago, the idea of like your um, your construct enlarged a bit and you had more room to move around and explore. That to me feels like, and tell me if I'm I'm projecting or if I'm off on this, feels a bit like what your book, your book is called God Is. I don't think I've mentioned it yet. God Is. And it feels a bit like that's kind of what your book is, is kind of like you're exploring around metaphors of God, kind of poking around. Is that, does that feel right and true? Yeah, I, I certainly think that's part of it. And how I kind of set up is that I, I kind of named some of this, the movement within my own story, right? And that it, it different movements and iterations of my myself, my spirituality, my, my sense of the divine, there were these particular images of God that were fitting to that mm-hmm. version of, of myself and of faith. And yet they were helpful until they weren't, right? It was like they were they were really great, but also insufficient. And so then naturally just moving forward and going, Oh, now this is a way, different way, a new way to image and understand God. And sometimes leaving behind past versions, sometimes still including them, right? So there's that whole like transcending and including aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly that was true. But then really beginning to connect that um, over time beyond just my own personal story, but looking at the really the sociopolitical implications of that, right? On On a larger, grander scale to say... You know, these images are functioning in a particular way in my life, and certainly they're functioning in a particular way if they're allowed to um, in in the world at large. And so if we if we don't allow that movement uh, and that expansion of different images, different ways of engaging and and imaging and and experiencing the divine, we will stay in a singular stuck place. And some of us will be even um, more particularly affected by that, right? Just, for, you know, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but if if God is a white male, right, which is the way that um, most depictions of God in traditional kind of Western culture and society um, and, and certainly uh, church culture offers, well, that, that could be great and works for some folks, but there's a lot of folks that are not represented by that God, right? They do not, they cannot and do not see themselves in that God, nor do they want to. Um, and so that's necessarily going to place limits around uh, how we understand one another, how we structure the world, how we structure um, uh, politics and institutions and systems. And so just just seeing this again, I, you know, I named it for me, what what happens at the micro and individual level, I think is the very same thing that happens at the macro or um, systemic level, right? And so, mm. can we um, can we individually as well as corporately expand are the ways that we think of ourselves, but also the way that ways that we think of God? Because frankly, but <laughs> maybe this sounds um, a bit grand to say, but I think that the the planet depends on it, right? I think like the survival of the world probably depends on that type of expansion. Um, for helping us better understand and just see ourselves and and others in the image of God. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love what you did with this in a lot of ways. Like one of the things that I really appreciated was, and you spent a lot of time talking about this, that you, um, you spend the whole book using uh, female images of God, using female pronouns for God, and then using like, 
uh, birthing metaphors, mothering metaphors. And one of the things that that did for me was uh, it, in some ways, like, I, I would be one of those people that's open and receptive to that. And I'm reading that and some of the stuff that I'm reading. I don't know how many, like, full books I'm reading that are like that. And it was somewhere in the middle of your book that I had this realization of, like, oh, like... M- like I'm so used to the things that I would read that are like your book. It if it engages in female metaphors, it's going to like dip its toe in it a little bit and then come back out of it, right? And then to use that constantly and even where there are things like you're using a um I, I want you to maybe a little later talk about the um breastfeeding and talking about that and relating that to the Eucharist. And things like that just felt like, in some ways, some of it, like pieces of it, I had little reactions to and had to be like, okay, where's that reaction? Like, why am I having that reaction? And then pieces of it felt like, oh, this is opening me up in some new ways that I feel like I hadn't been opened up to before and that I need to need to pay attention to. Um, so anyways, all that say, like, I like that it felt like the... The reasoning that you gave for for using female pronouns for God and birthing and mothering metaphors felt like sort of set the groundwork for where you were going and what you're hoping maybe would uh, the book might do in us in some ways. So, do you mind just sharing a little bit about like why you made that choice in this book? And is God if God's not a white man, is God then a white woman? Like what? Yeah, great. So. I would say, just in short, my, particularly in this book, my exploration of these distinctly kind of feminine images and metaphors for the divine just came out of my own experience with them. And frankly, that being an essential part of even faith and spirituality surviving for me, right? Like there, there had to be more to the divine than what I was given. Even though what I was given in certain iterations was helpful for me, it was just terribly insufficient. And as I continue to grow and to evolve and to expand, if those images um, of God that I, I engage had not also expanded, I would have left the faith and spirituality part behind. It just it would have no longer offered me anything or offered the world that I was trying to engage anything, right? But thankfully, um, God continues to be more for me. And so finding these um, feminine images and uh, metaphors and language were really helpful, also really healing for me because they gave me and continue to give me a space within faith and spirituality that um, the church by and large just hasn't, right? Um, there's just has not been enough space for me, whether in my embodiment or in the ways that I um, I show up in my in my gifting, right? If I was gifted in different ways, there might have been more space for me. But because I'm gifted as one who teaches and preaches, <laughs> there's just not a lot of space for so. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and and so having to continue like to work to eke out space in those contexts, and then to find this image is like, no, I got you. Like, there's plenty of space here for you. And in, in all of your particulars, in your embodiment, in your being a mother, in your being a hostess, in your experiencing midwives, um, I don't sew, but but I think about a seamstress, right? Like in your imaginary yeah. seamstresses, like uh, there's plenty of room for you here to see yourself in this and to see your neighbors in this, 
because not only is there not room for me within uh, a patriarchal and androcentric system and theology, there's not room for a lot of my neighbors. And actually, I don't think there's enough room for any of us, because I think even if you look like the God that's described in, in those those images, right, or within those systems, it's still insufficient for you, right? It's still limiting for you. Um, and so finding that sort of expansive room was, has just been, has been and remains still saving for me, just incredibly, mm. incredibly important and healing for me. And so wanting to lean into that and offer that to other people who may may not even know to consider that, maybe starting to consider, but but have not been given permission to think about it. Um, or even folks like you, who you said, like, probably if you would have heard on premise, the idea of this book, you'd have been like, yeah, that, that sounds great, right? I assent to that. Um, of course, God is not a white man, right? Like I checked that box. But then you read about my experience of talking about breastfeeding and it's like, oh, wait a second. What, what do I do with that? Right. This is this is yep. stirring up something within me. I'm feeling this black and then holding curiosity around it. Like you just said to go, well, why does that feel somehow particular in a way that a man talking about his lived embodied experiment experience and relating that to his experience of the divine, that that gets to feel like it's just default. It's normal. It's neutral even. But if a woman's talking about her lived experience, it's like, oh, well, that's a special category. Like, that's a special shelf in the library that maybe a few of us want to explore. But that's not the thrust. That's not the center part. That's not the whole thing. Bullshit. That gets to be center, right? Because because that's part of our lived experience in one way or another. So wanting to bring that to the center so that we can all um, find that sort of expansive space and really lean into it more fully. Huh. I'm kind of, as you're talking, it makes me start to think of like pragmatic things in the church. So I think of like preaching, for instance, and the kind of stories that are being brought up. And let's say um, still, even in, in the spaces that I'm in, in post-evangelical spaces, there are more female lead pastors than there were in other spaces I was in before, but it's still predominantly men. Um, so if the majority voice is still a man, is, I'm trying to think of how to ask this, is it like, is it incumbent, not incumbent, is it okay for a guy to get up and be like, I read this great book by Mallory and she uses this metaphor of breastfeeding and Eucharist and I'm going to use that metaphor. Mm -hmm. Like, does that work for him to get up there or is it like, or is it simply like just seeding that space towards more other people um, who are delivering from the pulpit? Yeah. That's a great question. And I think about that often, particularly in relation to um, myself as a white woman and the ways that I am moved and um, and taught by communities of color. And then, you know, what how what's an appropriate, helpful, honoring way for me to communicate some of these things, but also at all also not to take it on as as mine in some sort of false way. So that to say, I think different people would answer this differently. Here's how I think about it. I don't see anything wrong with that in and of itself. But if that's the only way that that is being that that that, that experience of um, of a feminine theology, if you will, or this example of feminine embodiment as a space uh, alive with the divine, if the only way that that is communicated is from the lips of a man, then it would be unhelpful and harmful. Mm. It's not that they can't, but but otherwise, it just feels like it's co-opting unless you also have women who are able to talk about their experiences, their yeah, experiences yeah. and realities from the pulpit, but also from other other spaces as well. 
Um, and so if you are doing that while you are also addressing any unjust systems that are separating people into categories of who gets to do what or not, uh, well, then it just falls, it just falls flat, right? But ultimately, and I try to lean into this in the, in the book, is that I'm not trying to to offer this sort of like swap to say like, well, we've done the masculine now let's try the feminine and that's sufficient though. I could, I could do that and be fine for a long time. I'll just be honest, right? Like that would work for me. And I think it'd work for a lot of people, but ultimately what I'm trying to get to is to help all of us lean into the fuller spectrum of our humanity and then, and then of divinity as well, masculine and feminine. Right? So I'm, I'm less interested in a man repeating hey, I read this, this was really powerful for me. Then I am him thinking about where are the feminine places within me and how can I draw mm-hmm. on that as I invoke the, my experience with the divine, right? That's yeah, yeah. much more interesting to me. And then when he's in the boardroom making decisions, how am I being invited to bring the full spectrum of myself, masculine and feminine parts? How are we inviting everyone in this room to do that so that we can rethink the entire structure? Yeah, that's good. Do you want, because I feel like, I've now talked about it like four times. Do you mind sharing a little bit on the um, the connection that you make between breastfeeding and the Eucharist? Yes, absolutely. So I'm a mother of two girls. Olive is just about to turn six and uh, Ivy just turned three. Hmm. So I'm out of breastfeeding now, which I'm okay with. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, but I had several years where a lot of my time was spent nursing, you know, every every couple hours all day, all night. It was a really beautiful experience, also really painful, um, frustrating, overwhelming, uh, magical, just anything you could imagine that defines my experience of, of breastfeeding. And I um, was was with a, a church community in Nashville for a while that at the back of the sanctuary had this little windowless room <clears throat> where um, any any mamas with littles who needed to go and whether it was to, to nurse them or to bottle feed them or just to sit and hold little ones um, and just to have some space, they could go and, and do that. And there were also in the in the middle of that room, you know, filled with with boppies and, and bottles and toys and wipes and, and rocking chairs was a table that had the elements of Eucharist on it. And it was so moving to look around and seeing all of these mamas who body, whose bodies were um, literally being broken open and poured out on behalf of, of this little one in their care. And at the same time, they were entering into this mystical experience of a body that was broken and, and blood that was poured out, right? It, it was so moving and so profound. And it was a way, again, that I wasn't having to come to God or theology or scripture um, through someone else, through a different embodiment, right? To go, well, I can access God or theology or, or text if I make myself somehow different, i.e. make myself a, like a man, right? No, in the fullness of my female embodiment with my breasts literally exposed, I get to go, oh, here's a way I am like God. And here's mm. a way that I'm also mm. experiencing God in this moment as I offer care to the little one in my lap. Uh, that um, that experience was and remains really profound for me, um, whether it was in that moment in that little windowless room or, you know, at two in the morning, groggy eyed going, God, I'd rather just be sleeping. And also there's something really incredible happening here in this moment. And I want to pay attention to it. 
Yeah, it's so good. And I I appreciate, like, um, I think in some of the churches I had been in in the past that it would feel like we would be like, oh, we're going to, like, you're going to share that in the women's ministry gathering. And it's going to feel cutting edge that we're having you share that there. Um, but to, like, open up the rest of the body to think about that experience and to connect it to the significance of the Eucharist, like, is really... I don't know. It was really meaningful mm-hmm. to me to to think about that being many, many, not only like obviously not having experienced that, but many years removed from that being an experience in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be reminded of like how significant it is of a woman giving her body in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, that was a really profound connection for me in your book. Another one that was really interesting to me that I had never heard somebody do before is a connection that you did with the fig leaves. Mm-hmm. Um with Adam and Eve and um, and like the reality of what fig leaves would do to your body. That, that was another one that I thought it would be fun to like, I was like, Oh gosh, if I was, I want to like preach that passage now so I can steal this from you. Cause <laughs> this was such a great picture. Do you mind unpacking that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, so part of this came out, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but part of it really came to, to a point of clarity for me when doing my doctoral research. And just realizing that so much of the theology I was given and even still being taught at that time just fell flat in the face of the the stories of the women who I was working with. At the time, I was working in a residential facility for women survivors of various forms of trauma and most often sexualized trauma. And that's what ultimately inspired my my doctoral research is going, OK, I'm, I'm interfacing with these these stories of trauma. And then I'm also in the classroom with um, preachers and ministers and theologians, right? And um, I just think we're missing each other. Um, and if and if what I'm learning in this classroom either doesn't help, doesn't help, or it worse, is harmful to these women and their experiences of recovering from trauma, then I'm not interested in it. And there's got to be a better a better narrative. And so, as part of all that, coming to understand different ways of been thinking about this, the story in Genesis three. And some really unhelpful ways of of thinking about that. And I think I think you in reading the book, you get a sense that I'm 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 less looking for like the right reading of anything or right one right understanding of it than I go, hey, I think there's more here. Let's explore it, right? Um, and so that's that's part of the way that I, I think about this. But rather than looking at that text as um, here's here's the explanation for why humans are just so shitty. And why we are sinful from the from the outset, rather looking at the story of these two uh, innocent beings who are naturally trusting. Why wouldn't they be? They've had no reason to think otherwise. And much like little ones coming into the world, they don't have a reason initially to be afraid. To um, they they have their their needs met. Hopefully, right? They've got these caretakers. They uh, they have people responding to them. They assume the world. Will, will respond to me in the ways I need to. And then as most often happens, something disrupts that, right? And so you have this disruption of trust for the two, the two humans who, why would they know to think something um, otherwise about the serpent other than, well, he's, he's telling me this thing and I might, I'm going to trust him, right? Uh, so then you have this experience of, of shame in a way that they had never encountered before. And as a person who has, who decades in from healing from, you know, really crippling shame, I resonate with that experience and that sense of, 
oh, I, I'm naked in a way I didn't even know to to consider what that meant before. And so what they do as part of that, it, as, as they hide from God in fear, is to fashion this, this suit of fig leaves for themselves, this, the story says. And I, I passed over that so many times. I'm, I'm not a gardener, you know, like I'm not a farmer. Um, so fig leaves, okay, great. Um, but then really learning that in fact, fig leaves can be really stinging to the skin. They can cause incredible sores and blisters and burns. And a lot of gardeners, gardeners will use special gloves just to make sure that they're, they're handling these leaves with a lot of proper care. And so what the humans do is take these things that they think will help them cope with this shame. They place it on their skin. And then the very coping mechanism that they utilize to try to help in that moment, which does help in some way for a while, as all coping mechanisms tend to do, it actually becomes a new form of pain, a new form of trauma, the new form of bondage, right? That, that is our story as well. It's, it's one in the state, right? And that's, that's what's so fascinating to me about this. So then this goddess seamstress coming in and ultimately removing that that false clothing that's actually really unhelpful and said, I'm going to create something new new for you that doesn't keep that cycle of harm um, in play, but can contribute to your healing and the healing of creation. Hmm. So good. Um, and so like your chapters, just so folks know, like e what you're doing in each each of your chapters, or at least in the latter portion of your book, is a um, is a metaphor that you're unpacking of God. So, like, God is a seamstress. God is a creator. Um, the The chapter title that was maybe most like, at least for me, was the one that was like I felt like I actually wrote in my notes. I was like, oh, this feels like the riskiest title. Is God is a sexual trauma survivor? Mm -hmm. And obviously, like you, you're doing a lot of work in this area. I mean, I don't. I don't know that I have um, a specific question as much as like, could you just talk about mm -hmm. talk about that idea, that picture a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, the first five years of my career were spent in this this residential facility, and I was proximal to so much trauma and so much pain and just horrific stories of assaults and and rape and trafficking and. And, and then all of the all the coping mechanisms that that these young women developed as a ways of responding to the horrific pain that was was um, forced upon them. And I just really wanted to honor their stories and to take them seriously. And I, I felt like I've carried their stories with me even since that moment and just continued to collect others, <laughs> whether it's students. Right. I talk about working and teaching inside mm -hmm. the, the prison there and and working with incarcerated students and just the incredibly high prevalence for those women students who uh, also experience sexual assault and trauma. Um, and so just wanting to honor that, but also see this as a space wherein they are able to access the divine, to understand not in spite of their story or outside of or away from their story, but in the very particulars of their story, including the trauma, that this is a space where they can encounter God, um, but also that they could understand that God's own self has experienced what this this trauma is like in God's own body. And so I talk about um, Jesus' experience of, of crucifixion, right? And that, you know, this this idea of crucifixion is this public display of, of shaming, right? That there's, it's more than just taking the life of someone. You could do that really quickly. You could, there's a, there are more expedient ways to kill somebody. 
but you but you string them up on a cross and put them out for people to see because you're trying to send a message, right? You're trying to show the domination. You're trying to show the extent of your power over and against another and to the very extent that we can take your life. Mm. And and so you have this this public act of humiliation and and shame and uh, where you're naked. And, and even before you get to the, the, the final experience of, of crucifixion, but then also within that, just these, these very, and you know, we're already talking about this, but I'll just name some of the words I use here might be triggering, but um, that Jesus is pierced, that he's bound, that his flesh was torn, that he bled, that he was mocked. These are, um, I, I just know so many people for whom this is their exact experience, right? And in various ways and to various ex- extents. What does it look like? What does it feel like to, to know God understands that level of pain and trauma in God's own flesh? Um, and that that's also somehow not the end of the story, right? That part doesn't go away. Even thinking about Jesus after resurrection, right? The wounds are, are there, the scars are there. But that it's still, there's still some movement to life after and life beyond this horrific pain and trauma. Um, but I also really mm-hmm. want to lean into this idea of God believes <laughs> what, that God believes women's experiences of, of trauma and assaults and, and um, brutality and so forth, harassment, because God has experienced it in herself. So you're not having to convince God that you're not lying, that you're not making this shit up, Right. God believes women because God knows what this is like. Um, and I just know for for myself and my own experience as a woman, but then also especially for so many trauma survivors whose stories I continue to carry and be moved and shaped by, I think that's a really essential message that they are not always likely to hear, even in this, the religious spaces that they hold dear. Yeah. No, I really appreciated that chapter. I mean, it was one of the ones that was stretching for me and good for me and challenging for me. And like, um, um, and even, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like it, that I felt like that chapter like stirred in me in a different kind of way. And, um, is probably one of them that I'll have to revisit. And I don't remember if it was in that chapter or maybe it was another one. Cause I remember, you were talking about shame and there's something interesting that you said about, I, I'm pretty sure it was about voices of shame that you said essentially like um, they're there to protect us yeah. and that's what they're trying to do and that we engage them with compassion. Is that the, am I getting that right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. I talk about that in the God is wisdom within chapter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, talk a little bit about that. Like that was a really interesting, I guess, take on shame for me of this idea of like, okay, there, there are these inner voices of shame and it's not just about avoiding them, but it's actually about like being like, Oh, thank you for trying to do this for me. And I can have appreciation for what it is that you're trying to do. Yes. This has been so fundamentally important for, for me. And it felt really important to include in that, in that chapter, as I talk about coming to understand God as wisdom within that I have this incredible access to that I'm not the source of and also it lives within me and I can access it and the mutuality there and so um, yeah when we think about something like shame or fear for instance 
it's really common to name these as negative experiences and then find some means whereby to escape them, to berate them, to get rid of them, to somehow move beyond them, right? And and there are religious and spiritual ways of doing that. There are also just very practical, non-explicitly religious ways of doing that. I talk about some of, of those in, in both angles there, but you know, okay, so you, you feel this fear. Okay, I'm going to pray and ask God to take this fear away from me and, and get rid of it. And my point is not to belittle like what that fear can do or how powerful it can be. Like I know shame, right? I've lived with shame for so much of my life and it is hard. But instead of trying to somehow just move beyond that or to resist it or whatever it is, to instead go, okay, there's some sort of message that my body is sending me about my experience. There's this wisdom that that I can access to help me better understand my experience. And so my journey of then going to literally have conversations with my five-year-old self or my eight-year-old self or 12-year-old self and remembering experiences that were really traumatic and difficult in those seasons and how confusing it was for a five-year-old. You know, as I said, my daughter, Olive is five, almost six. When I look at her and I imagine what would it be like for her to experience what I did at five years old, of course she wouldn't have been able to make under, to, to make sense of or understand that fully. There's no way she would have had the capacity to, nor did I. And in the same way that I feel nothing but love and compassion for my daughter, imagining her in that scenario, able to extend that to myself and then go, oh, I see how shame came in here and helped me survive, right? Because it said, okay, you have, um, you've had this experience and now we've got to figure out a way to help you interface with the world. So you're going to, you're going to perform. You're going to do the best you can. You're going to take up space in that regard, but also not too much space because then people are going to know that you're actually the bad little girl that we're trying to, to help them um, not see about you. And so it becomes this incredibly tight, incredibly challenging tightrope walk in this in this dance right but then also if you start to get too big well then you've got this critic that's coming to say no no no, pull back pull back it's like this rubber band effect of you need to be big enough to um to help people see that about you and show like no no i'm not bad i'm 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 worthy and look how good of a performer i am and what i can do but also don't really look too deep because actually i'm just a shameful dirty little girl and that worked for me. It gave me a structure whereby to continue moving forward in my life and not just stay utterly stuck in the trauma of a five-year-old, right? It was a helpful, adaptive mechanism for me for, for which I'm really, really grateful. And it worked until it didn't work. And so when you come to this point to go, okay, this is no, now it's, now it's working against me. So, so how can I attend to those parts of myself and the messages that they're sending to me and then as my 30-something self to go, we can move forward in a different way because we can see this, right? I can look at my daughter and see things in a way that she can't because I'm in my 30s and she's five. So now as my 30 or 30-something self to be able to look at the situation and see it totally differently with compassion for those, those parts of myself, with love, with empathy, and with gratitude to say thank you for the ways that you helped me survive, for the ways that you protected me, fear. Thank you for the ways that you've tried to protect me and not not let me get too big so that I would experience the trauma again, right? Or so that people would find out what, what I was afraid they would find out and I wanted to hide. Oh, I see you're trying to protect. Thank you for that. I honor you for that. 
And also it's time to move forward in a different way. That work has been incredibly healing for me. Um, I think there's so many implications for that for us as individuals, but also on a systemic level for the way we think about, you know, healing organizations or society or, or the world. But just even specifically for me personally, that has been essential. And I'm still doing that work, even just this morning, spending time attending to those parts and seeing, um, oh yeah, okay, I see how even, oh, you're, you're trying to launch a book. Okay, here's how shame kicks up. Here's how fear kicks up. Here's what's going yeah. Oh, right, okay, you're trying to protect me. Thank you for that. I've got it. And now my capital S self, my true self, my fullest self is gonna move forward in a different way. Thanking you for how you've sought to help me, but not allowing that to keep me stuck from moving into the things that I'm, I'm here meant to do. Hmm. Uh, there's so many good things. I've got like 15 other things written down to talk to you about. Um, but I thought maybe maybe the way we could close out, there are several folks that listen to this that are leading churches or are in some sort of leadership role in churches, and many of them in essentially like post-evangelical churches that they had a space they fit in, they no longer feel like they fit in that space, and they're kind of trying to chart out this uh, new and reimagined space. And I'd be curious, like, what you would uh, – I could see a lot of them really resonating with what you've written. And I'd be curious, like, they pick up your book. What is it that you would hope, like, it would do in them or that they would, like, sort of leave with that or how it would affect, you know, um, the shape of the way that they're leading the church? Like, what would you want to say to to church leaders? Firstly, what comes up is just gratitude. I want to say – Thank you for seeking to not just name and critique the wrong, but to say, I feel like it's it's mine to be part of kind of building the better, right? Hmm. And and not everyone is, is um, ready or willing or should even be part of that work. And so that's not meant to shame. It's only to say, I'm really thankful for the folks who say, yeah, I want to continue to lean into whatever the new is and be part of it. So my first thought is just gratitude. I would say I'm thinking about folks who don't find enough space for themselves, um, enough really hospitable space for themselves, particularly in in churches and maybe even in post-evangelical churches where some of it fits, but some of it doesn't. I would encourage them and I would hope that they continue to engage the divine in new and expansive ways and there find space being held out for them because that's been essential for me, right? So I talk about the God who is hostess and the way that she holds space for me. When I can draw on those experiences, when I know that that is true and that is real, and it speaks a better and truer word than whatever, you know, this this narrowing experience that I'm having in the church community or whatever, and going, okay, I know that that is the really real and the, and the truest true. So I can root and ground myself in that experience, in that embrace, in that encounter, and then when I move back in these spaces that feel a bit more confining or limiting or a little bit too narrow, I know that that space that I encountered still exists. And then I can say, um, I, and even a practice I literally will do is just plant my feet on the ground to go, okay, here's my space to take up here. No more and no less, right? Whether this feels really hospitable or not, here's my space to take. I, I don't need to get bigger and I'm certainly not going to get smaller. Um also, I'm invited to then say who might need space held open for them, who might similarly feel the confines and the limits of, of whatever this space may be, and how can I be one who holds 
space wide open for them that's really hospitable and loving and gracious so that they can bring their soul into into free speech and exploration. That feels like really sacred and essential work. Uh, so I hope that folks who, who are reading this and engage in church work um, will, will engage in those ways as well. Mm, I love it. I love it. Uh, well, your book, God Is, comes out, is it, it's September 20th, right? September 20th, right? yep. September 20th, it's coming up here soon in a few weeks. So, friends, I hope that you pick it up. God Is, Dr. Mallory Wyckoff. Um, and go go pick it up in all the places that you get your books. Uh, thanks for making time today. It's been really fun to talk to you. I appreciate it and appreciate what you've written here. Yes, thank you, friend. Lovely to be with you. Peace. Peace.